Things that used to live in their own buckets three weeks ago, they never did really. But it could, if you wanted to have those reductionist perceptions, or if they had been fed to you, you could have perceived right now, nobody is really having the luxury of reductionism. And so there's a kind of mandatory seeing of the interdependency. So having said that, I, you know, not everyone's ready to do that. But the people that aren't ready to do it are not necessarily the ones who you would expect. Greetings, future fossils. I hope everyone is staying safe and sane at home through the unprecedented weirdness of our time. Today's wonderful guest is Nora Bateson. Those of you familiar with the history of system sciences may recognize her as the daughter of Gregory Bateson, but she certainly brings her own unique spin to the question of integrating sciences, arts, and professional knowledge. In my eyes, she really deserves credit for critiquing complex systems thinking from within the discipline, helping people learn to engage and tango with the complexity of our lives with grace and humility, helping people cultivate an embodied and intuitive understanding for that which lies beyond the maps and the models. It's kind of cool that the timing worked to put this episode out today because for the other show I do, Complexity Podcast for the Santa Fe Institute, we released a recording today with President David Krakauer, with whom I had a conversation that I feel mirrors the conversation you're about to hear kind of amazingly. Both of them bring a unique angle to the importance of rigorous thinking in conditions of profound uncertainty. David being a very cerebral evolutionary biologist talks about all of this in terms of making sure that the simplicity of our models fits the uncertainty of the situation, that we're not trying to create huge, comprehensive, all-inclusive maps of the world that require better data than we actually have. I feel like Nora Bateson brings us into the feminine half of this same set of premises for a conversation. And to give you a little taste of the kind of mind that she has and why I wanted her on the show, I want to read you a couple of little clips from an essay I'll include in the show notes she wrote called Eating Sand. This is something she wrote before the coronavirus pandemic, and I think it really speaks to our situation, as well as the kind of work that she does with her warm data lab to get people thinking in terms of relational transcontextual knowledge, the stuff that falls outside the model. She writes, The way we talk about the crises, from rape to refugees to climate and wealth gap, from crooked politics to obsolete ways of living, the way we discuss what needs to be done now will shape what it is possible to do. This is not a moment to fix a machine. This is a moment to compose new cultures. Systems change is not about fixing the system. It is about sense-making. The fixing will happen by happen chance, not direct correctives, only when the interdependencies come into view. No one really wants to question the stuff of deep belonging, 
Things like the impermanence of current notions of ownership, material profit, citizenship, or even of the human species. But surely it is becoming difficult to deny that all of these are beginning to fray. Fundamentally, who am I without my things, my country, and my status, however dodgy? Sensing into belongingness in a parallel set of interdependencies is disorienting. What matters, my financial status or my community in the biosphere? Remember, status is a relational pursuit that drives people to destroy other relationships. Is there a reorganizing of relational being that demands a new understanding of status beyond fame and fortune? What is status in relevance to the interdependencies of life? Knowing about complexity and systems theory is fun for me. The crunchy work my head has to do to play with the theoretical language is a delicious charge. This is my geek zone. Others have theirs in tech, history, mechanics, gardening, crafts, music, or whatever. It is nice to have a niche, but ultimately insufficient. Finding the ways in which those theories and ideas have a place in my day, my body, my identity, my community, my microbiome. That is where the rigor goes into hyperspeed. Before I let Nora take over and speak for herself, I just want to thank everybody who has been helping keep this show afloat on Patreon. As weeks stretch into months, and it's increasingly clear that we will not return to the old normal, that we are feeling our way into a new kind of thing here. It's impossible for me to feel anything other than extraordinary gratitude for the kernel of community that still thrives around these conversations in the Facebook group, in the Patreon comments, on the weekly Zoom calls that I've been holding open just for whoever wants to be there on Sundays. It's been really nourishing and rewarding to feel like this show and the conversations that constellate around it are performing a service right now. You get so used to the rhetoric of preparing people for a crazier future than we can imagine, and it puts that future off in some sort of recessed distance rather than in the immediate present that we're living now. And uh, so I feel like everything has pivoted, like I've been training for this, like we all have. And as we sort out the terms and conditions of economic reform required to help the world thrive after a disruption to a system that didn't help the world thrive in the first place. One of the conversations we've been having on these weekly Zoom calls is about the emergence of, finally, a values-based economy. People seeing through the BS and knowing really how important it is to put your money where your mouth is, or in this case, where your ears are. (laughs) So, you know, if you find this show helpful to you, if you believe in it, if you want to see it persist, if you want to help me continue to allocate the enormous time and energy required to keep this show going, I hope you will bump on over to Patreon and uh, become a supporter. This week, I want to thank a couple of new supporters to the show. Ivan Marco, Eben, Myth Self, and Oliver Ness all recently joined the crew, and I'm super glad that you did because I've had a lot of people falling off lately, understandably, given our (laughs) 
we have surpassed Great Depression unemployment levels. I, I completely understand. And for that reason, I've made most of the stuff on Patreon behind the paywall now totally free. So even if you're broke as hell, I, I hope that I'm still able to help you. And that's all I have to say about that. I really hope you enjoy this soulful and heartful conversation with Nora Bateson. And that you let the warm data into your life. Stay well, my friends. People that are really close to me that have gotten the virus and are in critical condition. And so oh, wow. our family's been up in, uh, it, it came home. I'll just say that it, it came home. And um, so, and I had to go out today into the world and do things and get ready for the next wave of quarantining. And um, just went through the whole, run in the door, do the decontamination process. It's so, so surreal. So I'd say we just dive in because we have less yeah. time on this call than I would ordinarily want with you. Um, yeah. But I, I'd be curious you know, like to talk about the surreality. Maybe that seems like a good place to start. You know, I mean, I think most of us have seen empty streets only in like zombie movies and there's a way in which I was like, I was, I told you, I was just talking with uh, Eric Davis mm. as well as um, my friend, uh, Mitch Mignano and our all, all of us are friends with this guy, uh, Tony Blake, uh, you know, a scholar philosopher type. We were talking about this, the, you know, the liminality of this mm. moment and how it's opening us to the agency of w- things that we would think of ordinarily as inanimate, be they, uh, you know, like in, in some way that the, the virus, which is something that we classically consider not alive, not intelligent, is not just infecting us, but infecting the global economy and revealing it to us in a way that makes the will and I won't call it desires, but like it makes it makes the the machinery of civilization more obvious and makes that seem like that in some way it's it's weirding our categories. And I don't know if that's a good place for you to to talk about the surreality, but it's like a reminder that like the surreal means that which is like above the real. You know, it's not less than, it's more than mm-hmm. our understanding of of what is quote unquote real conceptually. Well, I think, you know, if you were to think about what it was that was absolutely rational, logical, expected, and sensible three weeks ago and what is rational and sensible now, uh, they're very different. It was absolutely impossible to think about shutting down, basically shutting down the global economy. It's interesting because I feel that I've been working with groups for years that have been working in all different kinds of imaginings of, of different economic systems. Um, and different educational systems and this, these efforts to have something that we could move toward, that we knew we needed systems change, right? And we were trying to imagine 
new healthcare, new education, new economies, new forms of media, new ways of forming intimate relationships, new, you know, there was just these decades up to now of this process of these visionings. And um, there was only ever one group that I ever worked with that I feel like had the courage to ask the really hard question. And it was a, it was a group actually that was um, coming out of China. And they were asking the question, how can we create communities that don't need money? It wasn't like, let's find a new way to think about money. It wasn't mm -hmm. any sort of alteration. It was no methadone for the heroin. It was a cut, <laughs> you know. And right now, that doesn't seem like such a far-fetched question. When suddenly everyone's home and we're all looking at our various forms of, you know, making a living and thinking, so this isn't going to work. I mean, what happens now? And how long is this going to last? And where is, where is this idea that all stability and possibility comes from this abstraction? Um, where's this going? Because actually, I'm very much in, in my house. I'm very much with my kids. We're very much living our lives at home. And I think this reveal that you're talking about of the way in which all these systems have had these disastrous fragilities. And um, they were premised on exploitation. It was premised on the strength of the system was premised on breaking life. Like how long was that going to last? And so we knew it was going to happen. And whether it was going to be a nuclear war or an economic crash or a great cyber hack or some sort of cultural, political revolution or ecological disasters or all of those at the same time or a pandemic. Um, but I got to say, it's not much consolation right now to have seen, you know, for a long time, especially when, you know, there's people that I love very much that are right at death's door right now. So I, I feel like I'm really holding both sides of that. Oh, there's possibility and, and really like there's tragedy here. And people that you know and I know are going to die alone. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's... And we are going to ache to be with them. Yeah, there's a... One of the things, again, like coming hot off the, the tail of this other conversation, something I... I would be served with more conversation is there are a lot of people who are seeing these circumstances as an opportunity. Mm. I don't know if, if it, it seems like a brutal and violent uh, oversimplification to say that we're getting a message right now. <laughs> um, I, I know it doesn't feel right. Does it? No, but, but like there is a sense in which, you know, it's like at the level of an individual, if you're going and going and going, and you're not attending to you know the needs of your body and then you get sick then there is a sense in which you can interpret it as an opportunity to reflect mm -hmm. and yet a lot of people i think are seeing this rather as an opportunity to exploit 
the vulnerability of our collective narratives at this time and like push their own sort of, well, you know, what's going to make this better? You know what we're going to have to do on the other side of this situation. And I'm just not, I'm kind of discouraged by the fact that I see so many people uh, attempting to push a narrative on this rather than to take the opportunity that we've, or take the moment that we've been given to rest in the imminence and the immediacy, you know, to be with our families and not try to like lacquer the whole thing with some sort of conclusive narrative and, and to really rest in that which is profoundly uncomfortable, which is the uncertainty and the grief that is available to us. And to trust that like, stories will come out of that. But it's sort of like, you know, (laughs) this is an awful comparison. But like, I was told the first time someone ever offered me DMT, they were like, you think you're done, but just sit there for a while with your eyes closed. And like, don't immediately sit up and start talking about it. You know, like really linger and stew in the mystery of it and, and be patient with your answers and your stories and your solutions. When I was um, rapidly getting ready for this call and decontaminating and rushing in the door and going through those hoops, I was thinking to myself, I really hope he doesn't expect me to say something clever about the coronavirus because (laughs) I have nothing clever to say about this. And in fact, I, I feel a kind of nausea around this kind of ambitious itch to have the perfect meme or say the next clever thing or, you know, make the podcast that's going to get the most views or like, what is this? This we cannot do. This is not it. Whatever it is we're looking for, it has nothing to do with some kind of weird popularity contest for being extra groovy. And so I, uh, I mean, I think there's there are some things that I'm just kind of stuck with right now. And when I say stuck, I don't mean stuck like like in a corner. I mean stuck like a like like stuck with a stick, like stuck. And one is that we got no business talking about after right now. We have absolutely no business talking about that. We have not even begun to be in this. And it's this thing of this like crazy appetite for harvesting and, and, and documenting and making everything happen before it happens. And I, I've been watching it for the last few years with so much stuff. It's like the idea starts to hit the soil. It's like, let's pluck it. Let's put it on a post-it. Let's plaster it all over the internet. Let's write a Medium article about it. It's like, it's a baby. It hasn't grown. It's a seed. It hasn't grown into a tree. It's not an apple yet. It's not time to harvest. It's time to think and watch. Our whole world is turning to liquid right now. Our every single institution that has formed us and shaped us and given us the boundaries of who we are with each other in our ideas of our not our identities, our status, our whatever, all of those things right now are liquefying. And they're not even liquid yet. There's a lot of people for whom there's still, uh, you know, they just aren't seeing it yet because they can't believe that it's possible. 
Um, but for those that are seeing it, it's it's it certainly isn't time to skip to the end because we're just we're just going in. I mean, you know that that metaphor about the caterpillar. You know, it, they don't just grow wings; they go into the chrysalis and they turn to this liquid stuff, and then they reorganize. And so I, I guess that's where I see that we are and that the most important thing that can happen right now is that communities um, have the chance to start to integrate and reintegrate to, to consider what the interdependency of these processes really was and what kind of warp and and waft we were in inside them. Well, so you've done, you know, relevant work all over the world in helping people navigate change. I think it was, you know, William Gibson wrote a piece on this sort of famous apocryphal quote of his that the future is already here. It's just distributed unevenly. I think it was, Mm. I think Gibson also is the one who wrote this article I read saying that basically dystopia is already here. It's just distributed unevenly and that like most dystopian science fiction is actually something that's going on, not in the United States right now, but in, you know, countries all over sub-Saharan Africa or, or, you know, somewhere where it was, it just, it's not a reflection of the future so much as it is of the present that the Western privilege doesn't want to accept that it is dependent upon. And so that's all just a, a way for me to get to the point of asking you uh, about, you know, this is not your first rodeo. Um, I mean, this, the global scale of this, the magnitude of it may be unprecedented in important ways, but you actually have a lot more experience than most people I know who are in some local or regional way working through these same not just like spiritual psychological challenges, but challenges in terms of how do we how do we come together in new ways of relationship and in, in community in the design of our systems and in, in you know the way that we are going to think about these things in new ways. So anyway, I'm just really curious. Yes, things are sort of emulsifying and and changing. You know, we're going through some sort of phase transition. We don't know what it's going to look like on the other side, but there are best practices for and good stories about what it is like to be in this space. And mm. I'm curious what you have to draw from, what you what you feel is wise to offer people right now who need a raft or uh, wax wings or something. Mm. <laughs> um, I guess, so I've been working with this, this thing that I made called the Warm Data Lab. And I have to just be perfectly honest with you that when I first put this thing together, I had no idea what was going to come out of it. And I thought it would be an interesting way to just experiment with complexity and looking at things through multiple contexts and that people could do that in groups together and that it would be a kind of a research practice. So I I started this thing and, and it, that was, I guess, about... Um, five years ago, four years ago, something like that. And uh, since then, I've done hundreds of them around the world. And what I started to see was that there was some very uh, important processes taking place there. 
And it, it has to do with this word you used earlier, the liminal, and that there's a kind of, well, the, the, you know, the word actually in our word world of complexity is abductive. There's a, there's an abductive process going on there. And that, that means that there are various contexts that provide descriptions of each other. Okay. And that what was happening in the warm data lab is that there were ways in which these contexts we live in, like, you know, education or identity or health or culture or family, that these contexts, it became clear to the people inside the lab how these contexts were actually so reflective and even descriptive of the other ones that that you couldn't actually fix one. It became very questionable how you could go at a, 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 an issue that was inside a complex system. Because inevitably, if you make that direct corrective, we're going to fix the education system, you miss it. Because the education system is, is a consequence of all these other systems combining. And it became really clear that, that people who were taking part in these labs were becoming very adept very quickly at identifying and describing and articulating and then responding to that way of things <laughs> combining across multiple contexts. So, and in particular, communities that were um, in the worst state of betrayal and exploitation were able to and are able to actually make those perceptions around those those complex systems. So the reason I'm I'm saying this is that what's happening is that there's communal mutual learning. And it's happening between contexts, between people, between generations, between cultures, between all these and it's all in the in-between. It's all in that liminal abductive space. When I'm talking to you about it, it sounds very na 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 maybe even clever, and I promised I was not going to say anything clever. I'm not trying to be clever. These are just the, you know, kind of words that are out there for this. You won't be penalized for cleverness. Thank you. Um, but, but what's important here is that basically anyone can take part, part in this process. And what comes out of it is not only this, this you know, way of perceiving these interdependencies, which is really important, okay? Because right now we're in this moment where the bucket that we used to think was economy is suddenly sprung all these holes in it and you can see how it's attached to health. And you can see how both of those got attached to the education system and how the education system and the family and the culture and the food and the, right? These things are really obviously blurring right now. Things that used to live in their own buckets three weeks ago, they never did, really. But it could, if you wanted to, have those reductionist perceptions, um, or if they had been fed to you, you could have perceived. Right now, nobody is really having the luxury of reductionism. And so there's a kind of mandatory seeing of the interdependency. So having said that, I, you know, not everyone's ready to do that. But the people that aren't ready to do it, 
are not necessarily the ones who you would expect. So people that I'm seeing that have the least amount of education, they're the most screwed by our systems, have the, the quickest, most adept response to complexity and interdependency of anyone. And it's all because of mutual learning, the way that they go into this process and start mutual learning. Was that too abstract? Does it make any sense to you? Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, um, okay. you know, so I, something that came up for me listening to you talk about this was marketplace of all places. You know, I'm not like a, a, an economics radio listener, but, mm. you know, just doing my job, they're working through a reading group right now on a free economics textbook that was co-authored by this big international team, including a bunch of SFI people. And it's about getting people to think economically more in the way that you're, you're talking. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's still rooted in you know, quantitative models and so on. But it's about helping train people to see social justice and climate change as you know, sort of this mini dimensional moving thing that we call the economy when as like previously, like you just said, they would have been considered sort of in their own buckets. All of these different issues that people regard as of value that are Mm -hmm. not given value by the markets currently. And Mm -hmm. on Marketplace, right, this week they were talking about how the novel coronavirus pandemic reveals to us how healthcare is not a private good, it is a public good. That if you cannot afford health insurance, that it's going to affect me and everyone else I know, because you're no longer going to have access to the care required for like effective treatment in a scenario like the one we're all playing out right now. And so there's, you know, when we're talking about holes getting poked in buckets, one of the things that seems that I'm noticing a lot of my friends doing that I myself have been doing is, you know, when I was younger and um I don't know, less sort of burnt out on just giving everything away. I was giving everything away. Like I was, everything I made, I was just putting up for free. And as I got older, I got of congealed a little more and was like, no, I have to make a living. But like this week, I was like, you know what? I got this stuff that's been behind the paywall for years. I'm putting it out there, you know, like you want to, Me too. you know, and, 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 and if I, the yeah, same thing. I like everybody yeah. is, I'm watching all of my friends just freeware all of this amazing stuff that they're doing. And I feel, again, I'm, I'm not trying to rush uh, ahead of things here. It's just a sort of a bad habit. But I do wonder to what extent we might find ourselves in certain ways in a better place once this recalibrates or, you know, once, once we find a new sort of, you know, pseudo equilibrium where we have a different idea of what it means to be in the commons you know, to be participating in the cultivation of a public domain, you know, that there's just more like there's something about the the way that the identity is shifting here that I feel like, again, I was wrong about this. I, you know, I thought that this would be a consequence of like social media and it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, there were ways that this was co-opted and twisted. And But I don't know. I mean, I got to be careful here because, again, I, I I don't want to reduce this to like seeing an opportunity, but it does there is a sense in which this has benefits that we regard looking back on it. Oh, there I'm doing it again. (laughs) You start talking. So, I mean, there's every possibility that this situation can get snagged 
by totalitarian surveillance, tech, militaristic, the dark side. But there's also this other thing, which is that there's this this liminal territory that is actually, this is one of my big discoveries this year I want to share with you, Mm. is that that liminal territory is actually inaccessible. The tech can't find it. The surveillance can't find the abductive process. It's like an underground space where there's something that is possible there that it won't be on the recording. It's not going to be, you know, no matter how clever big data is, it will never be able to find that, that space where those different reflected processes come together to, to, make, to make me in the world, to make me in relationship to you right? It's, it's, it's all in that relational process. So, but, you know, nevertheless, it's entirely possible that there, that, you know, we can get in big trouble right now. We're wide open. So I think it's something to watch out for. The police state is, is really, you know, it could be justified so easily. And um, my daughter called me on the phone when, just before I got here. I don't, I don't even know if this is true, but she said, Mom, I just read a story that said that Putin released lions out on the streets. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we have to look it up and see if it's real. But, um, but there's something else. Okay, so you know that awful narrative, that awful metaphor that people use about the lifeboat and that, you know, we can't take in any more immigrants or refugees because of the lifeboat metaphor. And if the lifeboat can only take 17 people and there's 33 in the water, then you have to leave 18 to die, right? And this doesn't work because those are not 17 numbers, those are 17 complex systems on that boat and 18 complex systems in the water. Who holds the knife? So whenever anyone's doing this calculus, it's like, oh, you, you imagine that you're not in the water, that you're on the boat making this choice. Well, in any way, if, if you and me, if we were on that boat, we would be taking off our clothes, tying them together, figuring out ways of taking turns swimming. You know, there's a, an umpteen bazillion unforeseen ways to respond to that situation if you tap into the complexity. If you just do the math, you're going to end up with a flat equation where you have to leave 18 people to die in the water. Incidentally, there's, you know, just to, just to give people an external link to do some more downtime research, mm. what you're talking about is, is uh, discussed at length in science fiction for over decades, I forget the name of the author, but he wrote this this like legendary short story called The Cold Equations, which was about yeah, which oh, was yeah. about this this thing where yeah. the, you know the woman ends up having to kill herself because the the shuttle can't land with you know she's she's a stowaway and she's 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 overweighting mm-hmm. the shuttle and so she has to make the decision to kill herself so that the planet that they're going to can get all the medicine the shuttle is carrying and like. I think, you know, Cory Doctorow is one of the people who has recently critiqued yeah. this exact work of fiction and saying, basically, you set it up. 
the author had you, you have to bend over backwards to come up with a scenario in which the, the cold equations have an inviolable logic because it's like the world doesn't actually work this way. You're right. So the other, let's call them cold equations because I like the contrast to the warm data, right? And so in the warm data, there's people who have stories, who have experience, who have ideas, who have memories, who have, who, who are going to interact and they're going to, ideas are going to bounce off each other and the ideas are going to change. And change, I don't know who said this, but change changes change. And that's where we are right now, is that the change that we're in is changing the change we thought we were making. Mm. And that's really important because it's not a time for old scripts. This is not a time for no matter how right we were three weeks ago with our new visions of how we were going to set things up. We're not there anymore. And the capacity for responding to complexity in in the moment where everything's changing that's the that's the piece right now so i'm loving that for example in sweden there's a medical center i think it's called sofia hemet or something like that and this medical center is realizing that that they are just about to get slammed and so all of the you know basically everyone in the medical profession around the world is gearing up for a tsunami of of really hard work and hard tragedies and at the same time SAS airlines fired all their people so sophia hemet if that's what it's called this this medical center called the ceo of sas and said hey why don't you offer your employees the opportunity to potentially come work for us and we'll give them a training to get them ready. Um, they can do whatever they can do. They'll be at different mm. levels, but we need people and we need them now. We need personnel. That's what we need. We need personnel. So two weeks ago, there would have been this idea that those people who were working in the airline world were employees of a particular in a particular job with a particular set of skills and a particular part of life. And two weeks later, they're doing something totally different because they are complex beings. They can learn, they can respond, they can shift. And those skills that they had in, as flight attendants or as air traffic controllers or as whatever they were doing, those skills found new shapes and forms. And now they're working in the medical world. Two weeks ago, if you had asked any of them to help take care of someone that was sick, an elderly person that was sick, you know what they would have said? That's not my job. Actually, you know, flight attendants are a pretty good pool to draw from because at least they have to be trained in like basic emergency medical right? stuff. Yeah. Right. They, they knew what they were doing. That was pretty clever. So... But I, I just wanted to kind of bring that in because there's been this weird reductionism of identity. And in that reductionism, people got caught thinking that they could only do one thing. And that's ridiculous. Yeah. So there's, there's just so much potentiality. If, if I'm going to say something where I feel like there's a, a discovery, let's, let's put it that way. Is there a discovery to be made right now? And I think that, that, that that's a big discovery, that there's this incredible wealth of possibility 
that is actually right there the second we get out of the buckets, right? Yeah. Yeah. For the complexity podcast I do for SFI, I, I spoke a few months ago to Rita Maria Del Rio Chinona at, in London. She's a PhD student who has been working on technological unemployment and trying to model how people might, like the networks that are based not on job descriptions, but on the skills that each, that each person has and how if one sector is disrupted by artificial intelligence, then those people are, are without realizing it, adjacent to this other thing. And that what you're saying, or part of what you're saying is really key, which is that most of us are not thinking of it in that way. You know, we're thinking in this like unitary sense of like, I am this. Whereas like mothers who have been invisible to the economy for since forever, I'm sure you've seen, you know, this keeps popping up in different forms, but it's like the, if we were to actually analyze mothering in terms of economic language, then it would be like, well, I'm doing this job that people are getting paid $75 an hour for. I'm doing this thing. You know, and once you sort of unbundle it in a weird way, in a weird way, it's like the deeper you go into the description, the less reductionist it becomes, you know, like in, in the sense that like this world of complexity thinking that uh, you and I both play in without pledging our, our like undying fealty to emerged, <laughs> emerged out of trying to get to the most granular thing, you know, attempt to emerge out of atomizing everything and, and like realizing the incompleteness of that. So, so yeah, I don't know that maybe, maybe a, a prescriptive for listeners would be like, you know, realize with greater granularity, what we actually have, like, you know, to take an inventory. Now we have an opportunity to do that where normally we're kind of like being pushed by the demands of our, our mundane existence you know, that this, this liminality offers us a space to really take stock and see, you know, what we have that we're not using, you know, what is adjacent to this mm-hmm. richer and more multidimensional person that we weren't really acknowledging for ourselves. Yeah. I don't know. The adjacent possible stuff. Indeed. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just, I just want to say that there's, I think there's, there's a couple of really Uh, potentially dangerous, if not just terribly boring possibilities around this. And one of them is that in order to access that, all of those possibilities and to go into that, that realm where I am not just this, I can do this and this and this, and I didn't even know that I could. And I find that out not because I had some internal plan Mm. to do so. I find that out in relationship. So the worst kind of thing that can happen is ambition. You can't get into that adjacent world of relational responsive potentialities if if you're driven by some ambition. And it's very weird when you're driven by an ambition to do that. But I, I see this as something that is actually really important right now, um, that the way that showing up is needed is something that has to do with a kind of integrity 
a kind of generosity, a kind that isn't about, I have two, I'll give you one. It's the kind of generosity that's like, you know, the way your heart pumps blood to your baby toe, right? It's, it's that kind of generosity. And it's not integrity that's about following the rules. It's integrity that's about not knowing what the rules are, but being attentive to the interdependencies and showing up, right? So, so those things I think are really important and get contaminated by the way that our systems worked before <laughs> was that you had to have ambition to get ahead, to get a voice, to, to incrementally change things. It was, um, it was part of the program. But the problem with that program is that that program was extending itself. So when I said, you know, at the beginning of this, I, I really hope that you don't want me to say anything clever. You know, I, I kind of really mean that. There's a part of me that is just kind of honestly a little bit brokenhearted to feel that to step into this realm where we talk about complexity and interdependency and the way to to be, you know, in this moment, right? There's no need for me to be special. I just need to show up. And in there, there's just like so much beauty and love and, and creativity and intelligence and rigor and like all that good stuff is there. But if I come in thinking I'm going to be a hero, you know, and that's where all that, like, this is an opportunity talk is kind of, yeah. mm, it just doesn't smell right. So there's one question that I, yeah. I've had in my mind for you since we first started talking about talking, like months ago. And it seems really relevant mm. to this, this whole conversation too, which is, you know, for those listening who have not figured this out contextually, you know, the warm data is in the relational and it's it's in the you know the imminent um experience of of the complexity of our lives rather than you know that we we plug into models hmm. and yet like you know I, I think of it like this curve i'm sorry i don't have a better way to describe this <laughs> this is just what it is that there's like you know i think about things like blind faith you know it's like you're taking one fewer data points but less computational resources. And then on the other side is sort of like Zen, where it's like you're constantly open to revising your expectations of the world, your stories of the world. You never settle on a thing. But, you know, that's exhausting to live in the world in that way where you, you know, you don't allow the ground below you to cool from magma into something you can stand on at least sometimes. And so I'm curious, you know, this is um, asking for a friend, you could say, <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think, you know, for, for most of us, it's like moving from being, you know, I like the lifeboat thing because it is, it's like moving from being on the infected cruise ship of modern civilization to being on our little like army ant rafts of like temporary and provisional story and, and meaning so I get anyway, the question, the question for you is like, you know, you talk about there being a rigor in this lived process. And I've spent a lot of time exploring, you know, my learning to tell the difference between my intuition and sort of like smaller, more impulsive thoughts as they arise. 
And I'm curious how you make this distinction. Like, I'm curious for you where the rigor comes in when you let go of the models. How does it look to... Because like right now, it's like in, in some respects, it's this, this whole collective thing has just made it more obvious that we live in a world where people are really struggling with this sort of binary or polar thoughts versus emotions thing. You know, and I feel like a lot of people fall to one side or the other and like they only trust the quantity or they are like, you know, anti-intellectual and like only trust their feelings. And it's easy to understand why people would only would not feel like they can trust institutional authority and expertise and so on. But at any rate, you know, I feel like you, you seem to lie off of this axis entirely, you know, so like what? Yeah, exactly. And it makes it difficult to answer the question because I feel like you're offering me a binary that is not relevant to the process. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about compost. Awesome. So, you know, when you look at a compost pile and the way that soil is becoming in there, there are all these little bacteria and worms and rottening things and stinky stuff and slimy stuff. And, and in that, there's all these relationships that are finding each other. And as they find each other, they create more relationships. And the relationships that are, are, are inside that compost are not, it's not about the relationships that are made there. It's about the relationships at second and third order. So that what's important about the compost is that it's making relationships that make relationships. So that's what I want to say in response to you, in response to that question. It, it isn't about the intuition or the quantitative. It's about perceiving the relational processes that make other relational processes. Like, do you mean orienting yourself to those? Like orienting yourself or just, I mean, I mean, we, we are in them all the time. I don't know how you unorient or disorient, but they do become um, more perceivable. The issue that I have with finding using the quantitative work alone is that the un- inevitably the numbers were, were got by pulling things out of context. There's no way you can do multiple contextual processes and get the numbers, right? Myself, right? So I am 50, almost 52. How did that happen? And you could weigh me and you could have my social security number and my birthday and you could get all these digits together. But ultimately, it's who I am is only possible in the relationships that I am in. And those are not nothing. It is not some, you know, ethereal oneness. Right. It's actually a lot of rigor to pay attention to those relationships. That's why I keep using that word. It's not, you know, you have to watch, you have to pay attention and not just assume that you're just a, a projectile going through the world, but you are moving it like the soil in relationships and and the things that get said become part of an ecology of communication that then develops other things that can be said and other ways that you could be. And and I want to bring this right back now to where we are. 
because it's so important that everything that happens now, everything we do, is a doing into the possibility of where we're going. It's not just doing. We're not just, we're not just stopping the hemorrhage right now. The act of stopping the hemorrhage and the way and the perception and the approach and the the, the, the sentiment, the texture of the way we stop the hemorrhaging right now is, has all the information in it that will be about what system we're moving into. So I just really, I think that's so important because when you hear people talking and they, in their urgency, they go right into tactics and the urgency of those tactics and we've got to get ventilators. And, you know, I, I've got people on life support right now in my life. And so I know we got to get ventilators. Um, they're damn lucky to be in the ICU rooms that they are in. But the way that that happens is, has everything to do with who we will be on the other side of it. The way that we do those very mundane things the tactical necessary things, the way that you administer the injection to someone who is having an overdose, the way that your body touches their body, the way that your voice is calibrated in relation to them, the way you look at them, the way you are with them matters. Even though that injection is still the same injection that frankly a machine could do the injection. But all of those relational realities are lurking in the everything. So I, I think that, you know, I guess I've said what I, I needed to say there. I just, I guess I feel quite urgent about that, that there's this integration of being able to see some of what is blurry right now and, and responding from a perception of that interdependency is a different response than just responding to the emergency. So you can do both at the same time. And for me, that's what it is. It's the, it's the simultaneous zoom in and zoom out. There's something about the image that comes up for me listening to you speak about these things. The image of the world that we had, mm. you know, being in the hospital and like the whatever it recovers into or whatever comes next has everything to do with your bedside manner. Hmm. Right. Like you say, like the way that you give the injection, which is how you see the world. That's like, what world are you living in? Yeah. Sorry. I interrupted you. Oh, just, you know, and just that, um, yeah, that seems really fruitful to me to think about that in terms of the, you know, restoring an ethics of an, an ethic of care. You know, we spent a lot of this call talking about, how gross it is to regard these these this situation as an opportunity, you know? Mm. But at the same time, it's like one of the things that comes out of an attunement to our interbeing is an understanding of the small but significant role every action has or like, you know, the, the impact that each of us is capable of. The richness. Yeah. Right, the multi-dimensional contextual communication that's going into the you know the relationships that make relationships. So, I think that's I think it's so important. And so, for me, I developed an online way to do warm data. 
So I'm going to be releasing it next week, but. Oh, good. Well, we'll, we'll put this out just in time. Yeah. Uh, if you want to send me info, we'll wait and then we'll. No, no, go we'll, ahead. Put it out. We'll get, we'll, we'll come back together. We, I mean, we're all sitting around at home now. So it's, isn't it, talk about surreal. It's so weird that we're stuck in the house. Everything is happening a million miles a minute. Everything is transforming and I'm just in my house. <laughs> Nothing's actually happening. It's very still outside. There's no cars on the road. There's no airplanes flying above. There's, it's very weird. Everything's happening and nothing's happening. I like it. <laughs> That's, that part I is mean, nice. It's, it's kind yeah, of you know, I mean, it's not, it's not fun to worry about people you, you love. Uh, it's not fun to stare into the abyss of the existential precarity that we've, we've all been ignoring. Mm. But I appreciate the, you know, civilization takes a sabbatical of this whole situation. Yeah. Anyway. All those things, you know, it was impossible. We couldn't possibly shut down the, the economy to save the ecology or to save each other. That was impossible. But it just got shut down. However, there's a lot of people who, um, particularly people who are in, you know, very dire economic situations that are, you know, kids who were getting two of their three meals at school. Right. And maybe they didn't get three meals. Maybe the only meals they got were at school and now they're not at school. Right. Single moms who have kids at home who work in the medical profession. And so on and so forth. So I, I just don't want to let that go unsaid right. because it's a lot of privilege to be able to be home and enjoy the quiet and read. And actually, I haven't had a minute of peace to tell you the truth. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. But it's like, you know, if you're going to be like working overtime, at least there's this extra sort of blanket of calm on some things. Someone's calm somewhere. Right. And I like that idea, but it certainly isn't me. <laughs> On that note, I have to rush off to another Zoom call. How about that? But yeah. You know, I'm, you know, better you than me because yesterday <laughs> I did, I think, five. And, you know, well, let that yeah, just be, so. let that just be an indication that your unemployed airline is, is uh, in service to somebody's hospital, as it were. Yeah. Finding new ways of being in the world rapidly. <laughs> Nora, I'm I'm so glad. In spite of the the insanity of this situation, I'm I'm so glad to have you had you on the show, and we'll do this again. I'm so glad to meet you, and let's do it again because it would be really interesting to follow up on some of the things that we have said today. And I think there's an arc here that is important. And you know, first it's sort of the news and the, the the numbers and the political thing and the shutdown and the being home and the, oh my gosh, now what? And Zoom, oh my God, the Zoom calls. And then this other piece is coming where we're really going to be watching some stuff happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that part of the story, we, it would be good to connect to what we have said tonight and not let this feel like, oh, and now we've coronavirus done. Yeah. Right? Because no, we're just building fermenting the place where we can begin to um get ready. Indeed. Thank you and my best wishes to to you and to yours through these challenging times. You too. Take care, be safe, stay home. I will. You too. As much as you can. <laughs> Bye. Bye. 
Thanks again for listening to Future Fossils. If you want to help kindle the flame of these conversations in the world, trip on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and become a regular supporter. Or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Or just share with your friends. All of those things help. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can reach out to me directly, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time.